Or shall we pray? Our gracious Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, We're up to chapter 2. And I wonder if our passage from Ephesians is one that we could really skip over. Uh, It's got some nice things to say about Jesus and unity, but when was the last time you had a fight with a Jew in church? Or, if you are a Jew, with someone who is not? Paul was speaking about a specific problem that really doesn't exist today, as far as I'm aware, and certainly not in our churches in Sydney. But sometimes we do hear people asking that if we make such a fuss about the Bible, why do we ignore most of the Old Testament laws? And reconciliation between people with different backgrounds is very important to us, the the unity that we have. So on both these scores, we have things to learn from this passage, in addition to the peace and hope that Jesus brings. Uh, Paul was writing to churches in the mid-first century in Western Turkey. Uh, One of the issues they faced was tension between Jews and Gentiles. These are people who were not Jews and had decided to follow Jesus or were thinking about doing that. Uh, Paul's message was that the barriers that used to exist between Jews and non-Jews no longer existed. The two were to become one and peace was to reign. The mark of the circumcision which was required of Jewish men was not required of male Christians. The commands and regulations of God in the law of Moses had been set aside. In Jesus, the old barriers had been broken down and all followers of Jesus, whether Jewish or Gentile, were now united in Christ Jesus. The reference to citizenship in Israel did not refer to a right of abode in the land of Israel, but to membership of God's people forever. And that was good news 2,000 years ago around the Mediterranean Sea. But as I suggested, there are at least two things in our passage that are relevant to our faith and the message we have for the world around us today. The first arises because many people have heard of some of the Jewish laws. They wonder why some Christians get so excited about subjects that the Bible does not specifically talk about, like homosexuality and abortion, but eat pork and shellfish and wear clothes made of a mixture of materials and have body piercings and tattoos, which are prohibited in the Jewish laws. Why did many Christians for centuries call Sunday the Sabbath when Sabbath means seventh and that was always Saturday for the Jews? Why ignore the Jewish festivals of Passover, Weeks and Booths, which are in the Bible, but make such a fuss about Easter and Christmas, which are not mentioned in the Bible? In other words, what is the relationship between the Old Testament law and following Jesus today? The second issue is ethnic divisions and conflict. For despite the history of racism in the church and things that some Christians have supported, like slavery and colonialism, 
One message of fundamental importance taught by Jesus is that God intends us to live at peace with each other. So these are the two main issues I'll look at today, but I I should briefly mention what this meant to the people who first received it. The early churches were made up of Jews, like Paul. They saw the Christian message as a continuation of the good news that they had received from God in the Old Testament. Now, Christianity for Paul was not a new religion, but the fulfilment of the promises God had made to his chosen people in the Old Testament. And the early churches also included people who were not Jews, people we call Gentiles, who had either been fellow travellers with Judaism or followed pagan religions and were drawn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In various places in the New Testament, we see the writers deal with how the different groups were to see each other and to get on with each other. Uh, Last week, we heard Paul speak about becoming alive in Christ through faith by the grace of God. And the section makes it clear that this, the section we've seen today makes it clear that this applied to Jews and Gentiles. Each person in this world can be right with God, no matter what they have done, if they trust Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. We are forgiven and right with God, not by what we do, not by the promises we make, and not by our ethnic background, wealth, intelligence or goodness, but by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, the free gift of God to those who repent and believe. Paul says before the Gentiles came to faith in Jesus that they were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have become brought near by the blood of Christ. So ethnic background was not a barrier. These Gentiles and Jews were united as one in Christ in the salvation and hope Jesus had won for them on the cross. In his body, they were all reconciled to God. Jesus brought a message of peace between all people, those who were far off and those who were near. We each have our part to play in God's church as he meets with us in Jesus, the new temple where we meet with God. God lives in each one of us by his spirit and we must simply not resist that work of the Holy Spirit in us, binding us together, uniting us as one church. And Paul touches on an issue that was very much alive then. How much did Gentiles have to follow the old laws found in the law handed to Israel through Moses and found primarily in the books of Exodus Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Paul says that Jesus had set aside in his flesh the law and his commands and regulations received through Moses. And Jesus had said he had come not to abolish the law but to fulfil it, but also that he had not changed even the smallest part of the law. In the book of Acts, we read that the early church struggled with this and ended up coming up with a pragmatic compromise that Gentile men didn't have to get circumcised, but Gentiles had to avoid food offered to idols, sexual immorality, 
and the meat of strangled animals and from blood. And in case you're wondering, I've never heard a sermon preached against black pudding. <laughs> uh, I have heard many preached against sexual immorality, but none against black pudding or other blood sausages. But it is nice to see pragmatic compromise even very early on in the church. That there were people with strong views on either sides, both with something, you know, looking at principles in the Bible, but they came to a pragmatic solution for the purpose of unity. Uh, and I think that there's much that we can learn from that today. Theologians have come up with a number of schemes to deal with the place of the law in the lives of Christians. The most obvious is that the law was given through Moses uh, to Jews, and it was only ever intended to be binding on Jews. It was given through Moses to the people of Israel, and I'm not a Jew. I can eat prawns and cross-dress if I want to. But that is true, and it works today. But I'm cautious about relying on that because it's an argument that Jesus and Paul and Peter could have made 2,000 years ago. Most of the world then were not Jews, so the law never applied to them. But Jesus and Paul weren't interested in perpetuating ethnic divisions. So if we have one set of rules for Jewish Christians and one set of rules for the rest, we're not united as one. So I don't think that's the way forward. Some suggest that the law falls into two types, the ritual dealing with sacrifices and food laws and the like, and some dealing with morality, the Ten Commandments and the like. The trouble is that the Bible does not draw this distinction, and it doesn't really take into account the way Paul deals with the law. So not many theologians hang their hats on that argument. Probably the best way to look at it is what Jesus and Paul actually did with the Old Testament laws. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes some Old Testament laws and intensifies them. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I, Jesus, tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. The law says, do not commit adultery. I say to you, do not lust. Do not even think about it. And in a number of other ways, Jesus intensifies the laws that were in the Old Testament. So Jesus took the underlying principle and expanded it for his followers. Some laws got affirmed, as when Jesus affirmed the Ten Commandments in Mark 10 when talking with the rich young ruler. But other laws were set aside, like circumcision in the books of Acts and Galatians and festivals in Romans. In Romans, the, the food laws are, are not affirmed, but Christians are encouraged to be careful with each other, not forcing people to do things when it, in good conscience they, others don't want to do them. For example, eating meat. So basically, we look to the ethical teaching of Jesus and the New Testament writers. Some of the Old Testament laws are restated or intensified. Sometimes they're used as wisdom or prophecy. And some get left where they were as rules for the Jews. 
with good cause, we don't worry about most of the laws that do not get picked up in the New Testament. So it's really quite ignorant when people criticise Christians for, for having tats or not following the food laws. It's just not part of our engagement with God. It's old covenant rather than the new covenant that we have in Jesus. And if you have any questions about this, because it comes up quite regularly uh, in the media and other places, uh, have a word with me afterwards, because it's really the second issue of ethnic harmony and unity that I want to spend most of, well, it's not going to be that long, but I'm going to say that I think that's the most important thing for us. It has to be said that the church has not always done racial inclusion well. Various supposedly Christian countries in Europe have over the centuries been horribly anti-Semitic, including France, Spain, England, Germany and Russia. In many countries today, there are racially based churches, sometimes for good short term reasons, but often because culture is used as a way of excluding people from other cultures. We see Christian nationalism on the rise in countries like Russia and the United States. And that is a horrible rejection of the teaching that we have from Jesus and Paul in our passage today. And while some clergy who came in the early days to Sydney worked hard to be kind to the Aboriginal people and encouraged others to do likewise, there were some foul racists among them and they did a great deal of turning a blind eye to genocide, rape, theft and racial bigotry. America is divided over race today, though many still claim it to be a Christian country. Christian pastors defended slavery in its very worst forms, which usually involved the subjugation and exploitation of people of colour. Back in the 1960s, churches in America were racially divided. You have a black church, you have a white church. You would not have a white person in a black church and vice versa. And in many places in America today, it hasn't really changed that much. I could, of course, list many places and times when things have gone well. But one need only look at the Anglican church around the world today to see very substantial divisions, hostility and disagreement. Divisions continue over the ministry of women and the gifts of the spirit, the importance of social justice and matters of gender and sexuality, that we're hardly united as one. I understand that people feel strongly about some of these issues. I believe strongly in the equality of women in all areas of the church and society more generally. But I take seriously what Paul says about the peace that Jesus has won for us and that we are still part of the same body of Christ, even if we have significant disagreements. I'd like us to take Paul's words and apply them not only to the peace between Jews and Gentiles in God's church and world, but all things that divide us. I'm confident that errors will be shown over time to be errors and only what is good and true will survive. And I'm confident that women will be leading and preaching in most places one day. 
I trust God to build the church that he wants. And I will not do things against my conscience, but I will listen and try to be patient with people with whom I disagree. And if a pragmatic compromise is needed in the short term, then I'm happy to consider it. But I think it would really help us if we looked closely at the way Paul exalts in the change in relationships Jesus has won by his death for us all. No longer strangers, no longer aliens, but now fellow citizens with the saints and and part of the same household of God. Then in verse 20, he says, we have the one common foundation of this new unity, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. There may be over 40,000 denominations in the world today, but we have one foundation, and that is Jesus. Then in verses 21 to 22, Paul says that this new unity built on Christ's saving work and his apostles' teaching is a single building built for the unspeakable privilege of housing God. Verse 21, the church of reconciled people is a temple. And what's a temple? Verse 22 tells us a dwelling of God in the spirit. So... Looking at this passage, what happened between the alienation that Paul talks about in verses 11 and 12 and the reconciliation in verses 19 to 22? The answer is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died. And he died by design. As Jackie summarised so beautifully in her introduction, Jesus died for peace. Yes, he rose and is alive, but the emphasis here falls on his death. We see it in the word blood in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near in the blood of Christ. We see it in the word flesh in verse 15, setting aside in his flesh the enmity. And we see it in the word cross in verse 16. The cross by which he put to death their hostility. The rest of the text is Paul's explanation of how the blood of Christ, his death on the cross, removes the enmity between God and Jew, God and Gentile, and Jew and Gentile, and therefore by implication between every ethnic group of Christians who are in Christ, who has become our peace. And I'd like to extend this to other things that divide us. The point is that God aims to create one new, pers- uh, one new people in Christ who are reconciled to each other across racial and other lines. Not, not strangers, not aliens, no enmity, not far off, fellow citizens of one Christian city of God. One temple for a dwelling place of God. And he did this at the cost of his son's life. We dwell on our reconciliation with God through the death of his son, and and we should. It is precious beyond measure to have peace with God. 
But let us also dwell on this, that God, that God ordained the death of his son to reconcile alien people groups to each other in one body in Christ. This too was the design of the death of Jesus. So to please join me in thinking. Christ died to take enmity and anger and disgust and jealousy and self-pity and fear and envy and hatred and malice and indifference away from our hearts toward all other persons, whatever the race or class or political ideology. Some might say that Paul was only speaking to Jewish and Gentile Christians. And this is, therefore, this teaching is limited to people who are in Christ by faith. But Christ died for all and wills that all be reconciled to God. So why would we hate and harm people who are not yet Christians? There can be no prejudice or discrimination towards anyone if we are to be the, uh, the people that Jesus has saved us to be. This is why we remember the death of Jesus in our creeds, in our songs, and in our shared meal of the Lord's Supper. It has made us who we are, and we do not hide this or the implications of valuing God uh, and in our lives and the value of each human life that he died to save, and the unity we have as God's people. Uh, in the lead-up to the referendum to change the Constitution to give Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders a voice in Parliament, I think we, as Christians, should fight for understanding and against racism and for peace. And we should fight against a denial of the awful truth of the last 250 years and its ongoing consequences. And we should speak for something that might bring peace and contribute towards shared prosperity and hope. Our Bibles tell us that God gave the first inhabitants of this land a special claim to and responsibility for this land. We find that in Acts 17.26. And I think part of our unity should be standing with them to see that claim and responsibility recognised in meaningful and lasting ways. And we will speak with our scarred tree mob to see how best to do this. I recognise that there is a wide range of views uh, among uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. For some who see the um, constitutional voice as not enough. What's the point of being able to speak? We could speak for the last 250 years. We need power. And others saying, no, a voice will be divisive. We've got other issues to deal with. And I recognise those views. And I'm happy to talk with our SCAR tree mob about how they would like us to move forward with them. But in the next couple of years, when the various forces at work in our society pull one way or the other, let us remember the unity and peace our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, died for. And for what it's worth, I think a voice would have a very significant impact 
upon the mental health of many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, for it would show that they have respect of the rest of us and that there is a place for us based on equality as people loved by God. So I think that what's happening, going to happen in the next year or two, is not just about politics. It's about the world Jesus died to make. And it's about his vision for how we are to live with each other. Shall we pray? Our gracious Father, we thank you for the unity you have won for us by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. May we always honour you in the way we live and speak of other Christians. And Lord, open our hearts so that we may hear the message you teach of a world in which the wrongs of the past are recognised, a world in which a reconciled people walk and talk together, sharing stories. And make this a world in which all burn with the desire to have your peace and justice reign. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's going to take work for us to get there, so let's stand and uh, praise our God in our next uh, song and call upon his help as we do this.